Hi, I'm Sissy Graham Lynch. Welcome to Fearless, helping you have a fearless faith in a compromising culture. Well, I got Eric Metaxas here on Fearless, and Eric is a New York Times bestselling author. His works include Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther, Seven Women, Seven Men, Amazing Grace, If You Can Keep It. The list goes on and on, but he's got a new book called Is Atheism Dead? And not only is Eric writing all the time, he's the host of his own radio show. He's got so many accomplishments, but for the sake of time, Eric, welcome to Fearless. I've been wanting you on here for a long time. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. And as you know, uh, I can get excited about things that, you know, get me interested. And I've literally never been as excited about a book. I've written a lot of books, but I've never been as excited about any of them as I am about this one, because there's new evidence. This sounds a little silly when you're talking to a, a sister in faith, but there is evidence from science that is so compelling for the existence of God. In other words, there are people out there maybe that their faith is kind of shaky. And I want to say, you have no idea. God is revealing himself through science, through archaeology, in ways that previous generations couldn't even dream about. And I feel honored to have bumped into this information so that I can present it in this book. Because I think it arms us uh, with apologetics for our faith that we approach the subject differently. When you know how dramatically clear it is that God is real, uh, not just from our own, you know, rather subjective uh, faith point of view, but just from science that, that you can say to anybody, atheism is no longer tenable. You want to be an agnostic, that's on you. But atheism, it, it, it kind of looks a little silly once you know the sort of fairly recent evidence. I do want to later on talk about a couple of your other books and how I've gotten to know you over the time, because that's what's really intrigued me. But with Atheism is Dead, this is quite different than any other books. You have an eclectic resume of books. I didn't mention that in the beginning, but everything from biographies to if you can keep it to children's books, even you've written your own TBN Christmas special before, which I was a big fan. I, I get your sense of humor, Eric. I, I think that needs to come back. I laughed, but you have an eclectic resume. So this book is quite different. What was the inspiration behind this? Why this book? Well, I can only say that I'm, I'm convinced the Lord leads me to things. There's no other explanation for it. I've always been interested in science and faith and apologetic stuff. And so I've, I've read a lot and I've been more and more amazed at what people don't know. I mean, when I ask my Christian friends, have you heard of the fine-tuned argument? They go, no, what's that? I think, whoa, how, how do you not know that? It's like, it's astonishing evidence, like insane level of evidence for God from science, which everybody's been told over the decades, like science and faith are at odds. And you think that's not true. It's not only not true, it's completely untrue. The opposite is true. Science is pointing to God. And by the way, God and faith are what gave us science. Nobody seems mm -hmm. to know that. So when I discovered this stuff, I thought, this is like headline stuff. You know, this is, this is uh, what do they say in the news business? Uh, you know, dog bites man is not a big news story, but man bites dog. We got to run with that. That's, that doesn't happen. This is a man bites dog story. This is science pointing to God, effectively proving God. And this is the world of faith giving us science, like 
we never got that memo growing up. You grew up in a culture like America or in yeah. the West, and you'd get this idea that science and faith and always have been at odds. That is dramatically untrue. That's part of the story of the book. But what I was really going to say is that I, I've always been interested in this, but only in the last couple of years that I, I met two people and one of them, you know, and we've talked about is Skip Heitzig. Skip Heitzig, a pastor's church in Albuquerque, and he's friends with your dad. And I got to know him uh, through our mutual friend, Greg Laurie. And when I was speaking in, in, in his church, he said, hey, you've got to meet a friend of mine, Dr. Stephen Collins. He is a biblical archaeologist. He discovered biblical Sodom. And I said, what? Hmm. What are you talking about? Biblical Sodom? Somebody discovered that and I've never heard about this? Well, you're kidding. You're kidding, right? Did you really? And I looked into it and it just blew my mind. But what always happens to me, sissy, it's like comedy. I discover something mind-blowing. So, so my mind is blown. But then my mind is blown a second time when I realize nobody's heard of this. Like this mind-blowing, impressive stuff virtually no one has heard about. So I thought, I really want to tell the world about Stephen uh, Collins's discovery of biblical Sodom. Everybody needs to know, certainly believers should know that this is not, maybe he discovered it. I mean, this is open and shut. But then I, I came to meet someone else, James Tour. He's a scientist, a strong believer, but probably one of the top scientists on planet earth, one of the most brilliant organic chemists who've ever lived. And this guy starts talking to me about the emergence of life out of non-life. He says, in 1952, some scientists at the University of Chicago said, hey, we figured out how life began from non-life because they ran some electricity through some, you know, semblance of the prebiotic soup, some solution with what they figured was on the early earth four billion years ago. And whoa, they got some amino acids uh, and they said, we're on our way. And James Tour, who is this uh, organic chemist and profound Christian says, in 70 years since they discovered this, we haven't moved the ball forward a millimeter. We thought in 1952, like, hey, we're on our way to figuring out how life came into being on this planet. But if you ask a scientist today, like, okay, Mr. Scientist, you, you know that the first life, the first cells appeared four billion years ago. Hey, how did that happen? They have less than no mm -hmm. idea. And then the irony is that the more we learn from science, the more we know, we know nothing. In other words, in 1952, we were ignorant enough to say, hey, maybe this is how it happened. We now know there's not a chance that this happened. And without going into the details, it's pretty obvious that God did it, that, that life cannot come into being from non-life without God, because we now know how complex a single cell is. Like in 1952, we didn't know the details, it's so complex that it will freak you out. And you know, there's no way this came into being. So those two men really made me think, I, I, I wanna write about those two things. And maybe I need to write a book that deals with all of the scientific evidence and all of the biblical uh, archeology. span uh, And the title is Atheism Dead came to me because in 1966, there was a famous Time Magazine article that said, is God dead? Like the evidence is pointing away from God. The science is pointing us away from God. And in a funny way, that narrative caught on in the culture. And, and we've always felt like, oh, yeah, there's some kind of a, you know, dissonance between faith and science. Well, quietly over the decades, the evidence has been piling up from science. And I said, it's about time somebody kind of told the story in a way that non-scientists and non-archaeologists 
can understand. I, it's so exciting. It's, it's just hard for me not to get excited because there's a lot of stuff in the book that I think people are going to say, how did I not know this? And they're going to want to tell others. And so I really feel like it's going to be a great tool to help people who aren't where we are in terms of faith. But even people maybe who do have faith, who, who need, they, they need to be encouraged that your faith is dramatically reasonable and all of the science and all of the archeology span is pointing uh, to, to the scriptures and pointing to the reality of God. It's, it's not just something you and your family believe, it's, it's reality. So something amazing is happening. It is, it's like science keeps revealing and pointing to God. I've always said like the land of Israel, they just keep digging up things every yeah. day that just continue to point back to the word of God. But with all of that, you know, with the scientists and academics, if they were honest with themselves and the public, they would have to admit that there is a God or, you know, an intelligent designer. Why do you think so many people push against the obvious, especially in our schools and universities, despite the overwhelming evidence? Well, I mean, you know me, I have like on some level, no patience for it. It's like, what's wrong with you people? That's like, why I love you. God, and this is real. But just to give ourselves some perspective and maybe to give some grace to people, right in the beginning of the book, I talk about Einstein. You'd think that if anybody was self-assured, confident, uh, knows that he's a big shot and he doesn't have to worry about what other people think, you think Albert Einstein's at the top of that list, right? Well, in 1911, Einstein, working on his equations for general relativity, he, he realizes that it looks like space is expanding. The universe is expanding. And when he comes up with this, he's like, oh, no, that sounds like if it's expanding, it means that it expanded from a point, which means at one point it came into being. It didn't always exist. That sounds like the creation account. That smacks of religion. And I, as a scientist, I'm really embarrassed about that. I don't, I want what I do to be pure physics and pure math. And I don't want it to smack of, you know, the Hebrew scriptures. And you think, how funny is this? Einstein was so insecure that he, the great scientist of the 20th century, he was worried about what other scientists would think. So he fudged his equations to make it look like it's not really probably expanding. And we, we don't need to look at that. And it was others. It was a a Jewish, uh, a Russian Jew uh, named Friedman, and then uh, a Belgian Catholic priest who was also a physicist named Lemaitre, and then the American Edwin Hubble, the three of them basically bombard him and then saying, no, you're, you're wrong. Like there's plenty of evidence that your discovery of the uh, expanding universe, it's correct. You're right, Einstein, you're not wrong. And in 19, I think it was 29, he declared this to be the biggest blunder of his life, that his fear of what others thought made him suppress what he had discovered. So he doesn't get credit for discovering the Big Bang, the expanding universe, because he was afraid. He didn't want to tell anybody. So you think if Einstein was afraid mm. because of the scientific consensus, what does that tell you about lesser scientists today? They are, uh, many of them, cowed by people's opinions. But you know and I know that the biblical view of people says that we're fallen and we're sinners. And so people's instinct is what's going to get not to search out the truth. It's what, what's going to move my ball forward. What's going to move my career forward. What's going to help me. Mm -hmm. It's only the rare people that are secure enough in who they are and in, in truth. And the idea that truth is truth 
to talk about this. And one of the first characters I talk about in the book is a guy named Alan Sandage, who he studied under Hubble. And he is really one of the greatest astronomers who ever lived. He was a secular Jew, but he came to the conclusion on his own that the universe is expanding and God is real. God created the universe and he wasn't shy about it. So I start my book with his story because I said, this is, this is an amazing story. A scientist from science comes to faith and isn't shy about it. You know, that's a common thread through a lot of your books. You, you talk about uh, men who were defenders of truth and how God used them throughout our culture, throughout society to change the world yeah. and to change culture. And to be honest, you and I, we've gotten to know each other over the last uh, four or five years. We met in passing, but I really got to know you and your wife, Suzanne, on a trip to Israel one time where then I thought I could call you friend at that point. I was actually with Suzanne, I think, in a coffee shop outside the old city of Jerusalem uh, when I got the news, my grandfather had passed away. She was the friend. She was the one I grabbed her hand. So I call you guys friend, but you have been a defender of faith and truth. You've wanted to point people to truth, no matter what that would cost your career. I've um, always thought like, I've been intrigued. Here's this New Yorker, always the best dressed in the room. Your intellect, you're from, uh, you know, an Ivy league, you went to Yale, but I'm thankful for that, especially in the times that we've been in this culture of how you've defended and you've stood for truth. But I want people to know how you got there to tell these stories that you continue to tell. Tell us a little bit of how you grew up being the son of immigrants that gave you this passion for this country, for this freedom, the ability to tell these stories. Yeah. Well, um, if anybody wanted to read a really fun book, the, the last book that I wrote right before is Atheism Dead. Last book I wrote, it's called Fish Out of Water. And I and, love that um, title because that's exactly how I describe you. Yeah, well, I mean, I am a fish out of water in many ways, which is why that's the title. But actually, the bigger reason it's the title is because at the end of the book, the, my book, Fish Out of Water, is really my long way of telling how I came to faith. And at the end of the book, Jesus is the fish out of water. I don't want to give it away, but it's a literary memoir. And it's a lot of the stories are funny, crazy, insane stories of, of growing up. I just think it's valuable to tell our stories and especially when it ends with Jesus, you know, so it's the kind of a book you can give to secular friends who they just like a good read, a literary memoir, you know, but uh, my story, you know, it, like many stories, it's strange, right? I grew up going to the Greek Orthodox church every Sunday, but I was never really born again. And then you go to a place like Yale and you're just lost because the, everybody's telling you like that faith stuff is kind of passe. So you sort of go along, you go with the flow and then you graduate and you don't know which way is up. Like what's the meaning of life? Now, many people can kind of dive ahead into a career without worrying about the meaning of life. I was not so fortunate. So I kind of floundered around trying to figure everything out. And I, I was miserable and the Lord in his infinite mercy led me to himself in a dream, uh, which culminates with this image of a fish out of water, which I, I don't want to give it away too much, but it's a beautiful story and I didn't make it up. The Lord made it up and the Lord gave it to me. It's my life and then it's this dream and I had nothing to do with it. But around my 25th birthday, when that happened, it just changed everything. And I said, I wanna live my life to his glory. I wanna use my gifts to his glory. I wanna be a writer to his glory. I wanna broadcast and do, do, do comedy and do, do anything I can do. And so far that's what I've been doing. And as you said, you know, 
to some extent, we have to count the cost and that there is a cost of discipleship. If you kind of want it all, uh, Jesus says, well, if you really want it all, you're not going to get it all in this life. Mm. And you, if you really believe that, then you say, okay, Lord, whatever you want. And uh, so, yeah, it has cost me to some extent in my career. There's no question about it. You know, if you say, I think people should vote for Trump, a lot of people think, oh, Eric, when did you become a racist? What happened to you? Did, weren't you the Bonhoeffer guy? And like, don't you understand that, that Trump is Hitler 2.0? What's wrong with you? And you have to sort of endure that because you can't really explain these things to everybody, nor are some people really interested in an answer. But praise God, we just, we do what we can. And along the way, very sadly, we lose some friends, but we gain some friends like you. And I, I will never forget the time we were in uh, Jerusalem together. You and Suzanne were in a coffee shop when you got the call from your dad that your grandfather had died. And I was in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in, in the very place, the sacred place when, uh, when you got that call. And I remember coming out of this, one of the holiest places on planet Earth where, where Jesus was buried. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. And I come out and I bump into Suzanne and she tells me, your, your grandfather, a man that I revered my whole life and still do, I mean, that, that he had just passed away. It's just, you know, it's not the kind of thing you'll ever forget. It's very meaningful to me that I had the privilege of, of being there with you during this amazing moment. Well, you're right. We do gain friends along the way. And I want to encourage people. And you mentioned, you know, Bonhoeffer, your book that um, maybe that has touched the lives of so many people. I know that's personally meant a lot to me. When you look at Bonhoeffer, I think you wrote it, what, 10 or 11 years, over 10 years ago. Yeah. Did you ever think that story would be as relevant today? Is there parallels from his life to what's happening in America right now? I mean, yes and no. I had a sense while I was writing it. I was kind of astonished as I was writing it and thinking, ooh, this seems like it smells familiar. It smells like this is, this is happening here. But did I really think it would happen so quickly? Did I really want to believe it? No, I didn't. So suddenly to be where we are now and to see, unfortunately, the parallels are dramatic. Could anybody have dreamt that uh, we're going to have a Marxist dictatorship in the making with people throwing away everything we believed in for 240 something years and sort of moving into a brave new world where you are uh, demonized if you voted for uh, Donald Trump or if you talk about him as though he's anything less than Hitler, you're gonna be demonized if you say, I don't think it's safe to get the vaccine. I don't wanna put that in my body. I've done my own research, doesn't seem like a good idea that you're gonna be demonized. You can't eat in restaurants, you can't do that. I mean. None of us could have seen this coming, but because the Lord gave me the Bonhoeffer book to tell the story, I really believe the Lord prepared his church mm -hmm. through the story of Bonhoeffer. I mean, it, more than a million copies were sold over that time. And I think of all these people that come up to me and say, your book really affected me, changed my life. And I think that's, they never say which book. They always mean the Bonhoeffer book. And it's because that's the book that that story is a, is a prophetic story. The Lord gave Bonhoeffer this life to live so that those of us who know about it today can say, we don't want that to happen in America. So we're going to do what the German church didn't do. We're going to fight. We are not going to allow this to happen to us. We're going to wake up. We're going to wake up uh, our friends and our neighbors. And we're going to say, look at what is happening. Look what happened in Germany in the thirties. Do you want this to be you? And it will be you if you don't wake up and if you don't stand and stuff. So I, I feel, you know, honored by the Lord that I get to be a part of that. Do you think the church is waking up? Um, I do. 
I do. Uh, I think that there are many in the church who are not waking up and who won't wake up, but I still think there are many who are waking up now and there are many who have become awake. And when things get really bad, I mean, we know this, the scripture says, uh, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. I mean, that is happening now. We're seeing things happening. We're seeing people rise up and wake up and, and fight and, uh, you know, take on uh, school boards. And they, we're seeing Americans waking up. And I really think that as a result of the new book is atheism dead. I think a lot of people who are kind of on the fence about the faith thing are going to say, you know what? Most of the people on the right side of this fight are these kind of Christians. Maybe it's time for me to understand that that's part of this equation, that liberty cannot be divorced from, you know, the God of liberty and the God who gives us a right. So I'm, I'm really hopeful. I think we have to fight. We have to do everything we can. But I don't believe the Lord has called us to this fight and has warned us with the story of Bonhoeffer uh, to let us repeat that. So I believe that if we're willing to fight and willing to sacrifice whatever we need to sacrifice, trusting the Lord, I think that there will be, you know, in Lincoln's famous words, a new birth of freedom. It's really tough. But if we walk with the Lord in it, I, I think he's going to he's going to do great things. Uh, so I'm, I'm genuinely hopeful, but I think we have to really fight and be willing to do whatever we need to do uh, for his purposes in this generation. Yeah. And I think, you know, you just mentioned Lincoln, another man who had mastered God's word and he depended on God and that relationship. And you, you tell those stories of men throughout history, all the way from amazing grace and Wilberforce and how he really changed culture. Even if people don't even realize it, we don't have time to go in that today. I just encourage people to go buy your book, buy all his books. You'll learn a lot. You'll be encouraged. And I do have your children's book. I think that's the only one you've ever given me by the way, but because I'm in 900 square feet, most of my stuff is in uh, storage. So I told the kids they could not bring too many books. I did have one of your books still here in my tiny apartment, but Eric, just as we close, I want to just tell you, thank you. Thank you for being a defender of truth, especially over the last few years. And you are willing not to compromise the gospel and the truth. And I'm so thankful for your voice and a time such as this. I always want to encourage my listeners. We don't need to be fearful the days that we're facing. These are actually pretty exciting times. As you mentioned earlier, the things that keep revealing like your new book, that science is on our side. And none of this has taken God by surprise. These are all in his plans. And he's created each of us for a time such as this, whether it's parents and raising our children, he's even created our children for this time. And we don't need to be afraid. We're in the Lord's army and thankful to be in the army with you, Eric. Thank you for being a dear friend. You right, and right back at you. Your family has hugely blessed me. And I just want to say to people, if you really fear God, you don't fear anything else. The Lord has created us for this time. It's not like a coincidence we're here. He created us for this time and he wants us to trust him utterly and to be totally free. Say what you think, speak the truth. Uh, and you know, the Lord is with us and anything else, you should be afraid of anything else. Uh, but living freely and uh, in, in just in the fear of God and the joy of God's presence as we live that way. I mean, it's really the only way to live. It's what he created us. It's how he created us to live. So, but we need to remind ourselves. And so here we're doing that. Okay. One last question. And this was not planned. I did not have this in my notes. I was listening to an interview with my grandfather today. And because I'm always listening, trying to learn. They asked him, what is your purpose? Eric, what is your purpose here on this earth? What is our purpose? Well, there's, there's no question. I have to give you the textbook answer because there's no other answer. It's to glorify the Lord. 
to live for him uh, with every part of my being, my brain, my soul, my body, my mind, my, my, my strength, anything else is foolishness. This is not like for some religious people, for Billy Graham, or, I mean, this is why every single one of us is on earth. And so that's true freedom, that's real life. And uh, so there's just, there's literally nothing better than that. If you don't get that, you're, you're missing everything. Like that's literally why we're here. And whatever that means, it's, it means something different for everyone. Uh, not everybody's called to be an evangelist. Not everybody's called to be a writer. Not, you know, we're all called to different things. But whatever God calls you to, whether it's just being a, a good parent and spouse or a good citizen, whatever the Lord calls you to, just like do it with total freedom and joy unto him, it really is the only way to live. Absolutely. Eric Metaxas, thank you for joining me on today's episode of Fearless. I hope to see you soon. The sooner the better. God bless you, my sister. I'm thankful for Eric for joining me on today's episode of Fearless. He truly uses his gift of writing to help others have a fearless faith in these times that we are facing. Go to his website, ericmetaxas.com, where you can find a full list of all his books. I will put a link in the show notes, but his books will bless you and it will encourage you in your faith in these times that we're in. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Fearless. And while you're checking out his website, I encourage you, check out mine, sissygramlynch.com, where you can get caught up on all the latest episodes of Fearless. Thank you and God bless. I